Our Holy Father, we are so thankful that You would save us and redeem us not with gold or silver, but with the only means You had with the precious blood of Christ. Help us to understand more fully what that means. You've given us a commission to share Christ. Some are hesitant. Some are uncertain. But help us with a sense of boldness and dependence on the Spirit to be faithful even in this week. We thank you for the outreach next month. We pray for the campus in Graniteville as they seek to invite friends, those who are unchurched and others, and, and those here on our own campus, that you would direct us to the people that need to come on that night, that you would empower Todd Friel, anoint him and speak through him on Friday night and then again in our Sunday morning service. Now we ask you this morning, that as we open the Word, that the Holy Spirit would help us. Thank You, Spirit of God, that You are the illuminator, You're the teacher, You're the helper. We need You today. This Word that You inspired. Help us to understand it more fully, that we would see who we are in Jesus Christ. Fill me, I ask, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Take God's Word with you this morning. Turn to the book of Romans, the third chapter. If you are here for the first time, we just finished a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the prophet Malachi. Before we begin our next book of the Bible, I want to do a series on our new identity in Christ. Our culture is obsessed with individual identity. There's personality tests, there's dream assessments. They tell us that we even need to discover what gender we are if it's different from what we were born with. Of course, the Scripture is clear. God created man as male and female, there are only two genders. But when a culture loses their morals, they lose their mind. Immorality always leads to insanity. That's Romans, the first chapter. God made us in His image. This image has been scarred and fallen and damaged through sin. But when you're born again, He makes you into a new creation, a new creature, depending on your Bible translation. Now, our world would encourage us to look within to discover our identity. Some are tempted to look to their career as who they are. And after all, you spend decades potentially in a career, and it in many ways defines what you do. But if that's the only place you find your identity, what happens when you lose your job or when you retire? Many, even through their career, obtain a certain status or a certain financial standing. Others seek uh, identity through relationships, through grades, through educational status, reputation, fame. But those things can easily crumble. Sometimes a single word of gossip can dismantle who you think you are. Age, well, it changes your appearance if you found a sense of worth in that. But God is always the same. We've studied that recently in the prophet Malachi. The writer of the Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want us to be obsessed with finding our identity in Christ. That's what the Scripture would admonish us to do as new creations in Christ. And when you look in the mirror, you need to look into the mirror of God's Word to see what God says about you, how He thinks about you. What does it mean to be created anew in Jesus Christ? Now this section that we're going to look at is really serving as an introduction 
to what we're going to study in depth in Romans 5-8. through 8. When you come to 5-1 and it says we've been justified by faith and we have a new standing in grace, there's an assumption that you know what that means. And of course, Paul spent four chapters, one showing our guilt, but two showing how it is that God declares an unrighteous person righteous in His sight. So this is by way of introduction, but let me just remind you, it's not enough to say that I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I'm spiritual, to say, therefore I have a new identity. That's certainly part of it. But it's much more than that. Who is he writing to? He's not writing to lost people, trying to get them saved. He's writing to save people, trying to grow them up in Jesus Christ. He wants us to deepen in our respect for who God is. He wants us to be enamored with what He has accomplished through the cross of the Lord Jesus. One, so that we can share the Gospel plainly and simply, but two, that we might think of ourselves as the Lord thinks of us. I've said it many times that if I were stranded on a desert island and I could only have one book of the Bible, I think I would want the book of Romans. And if I could only have one paragraph of the Bible, I'd want the paragraph within Romans that we're going to study this morning. Men like John Knox, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, Charles Cranfield said that this paragraph that we're studying this morning is the single most important paragraph in all of Scripture. And again, it has great implications for those who are saved, but also for those who are lost. I want to begin by reading... Romans 3, we're going to pick up in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. You'll be gifted one. Romans 3, starting in verse 19, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin." But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now if you're new, there is a note-taking outline on the back of your bulletin. For those live streaming, you can download it and print it out. There are four major truths that are underscored in this passage. And the first concerns the universal verdict. The universal verdict. In the preceding paragraph, if you look across the page to verses 10 to 18, you'll see a different typeset. Now, different publishers will do Old Testament quotes differently. But for instance, the New American Standard, like most English Bibles, will put those Old Testament quotations all in capital letters. And so in verses 10 through 18, Paul is quoting the Old Testament law to really describe, to highlight our awful condition. And so in speaking of the law that he just quoted, he says this in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
And so Jewish people who would read the preceding paragraph, they would say, oh yeah, those quotations, they apply to those wicked, lawless, pagan Gentiles. Because certainly the pagans, pagan, in the first century were Gentiles. But Paul is clear. Now we know that whatever the law says, again, the Old Testament law in general, it speaks to those who are under the law, or more literally, those who are within the law, which would include, of course, the Jewish people. In other words, the Old Testament law applies not simply to those who are Jews, but to those who are Gentiles. Well, why does he quote from the law? Well, notice, so that, here's the reason, so that every mouth may be closed, One of the purposes of the law was to close our mouths. Some of your Bibles say to silence, to stop your mouth. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now throughout this portion of Scripture, Paul uses a number of different Greek words that are borrowed from the courtroom. And he acts really like a lawyer in the first three chapters especially. He goes through every conceivable segment of society, whether it's the raw pagan who's an idolater, whether it's the highly religious man who's lost, whether it's the Jewish man that has been blessed with many privileges as God's covenant people. And he reminds us that whoever you are, you're guilty, that no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. Every mouth will be closed. No one will be able to utter a single peep at the judgment bar of God. We're all guilty. He's underscoring that the Old Testament taught we are sinners. We have zero defense before an absolutely holy God. Well, why are we guilty? Look at verse 20. He gives his answer because, here's why, by the works of the law, no flesh, or you could say no person, no individual, will be justified in his sight. All of us have God's law. Even the pagan Gentile who's never seen a Bible, he's argued in Romans 2.15, have the law of God written on their hearts. And all of us not only have the law of God on our hearts, some of us have it in tablet form as these Jews did. The Ten Commandments and in written form in the books of the Old Testament. Well, someone might object. Well, if the law won't save you, Paul, then why on earth did God give it? Well, among other reasons, he tells us here, notice, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law was never given to save us, but to reveal us, to show us, to expose us that we're guilty before God. It was never given so that we could be redeemed by it, but to show us our need for a redeemer. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Put out in the margin next to that verse, Romans 7 and verse 7. Uh, He uh, expands on this uh, truth in that verse. Let me read it to you, Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he uses one of his strongest statements that he uses several times in Romans. May it never be. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. So you see, the fact that the law is embedded in our conscience, the fact that it's written on tablets of stone, when you read you shall not covet and you coveted, you realize that you are guilty. It convicted you. It condemned you. 
If you went out and stole something or committed adultery or committed premarital sex or got drunk, the law would show you as a violator of the law. Uh, Galatians 3.24 also underscores this truth that one of the functions of the law is to make us aware of how bad we are. Listen to these words. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The Old English, I like the way it renders it, the King James says, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us on to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Huge controversy in the last two weeks with one of the major evangelical leaders saying that it's okay to go to a transgender wedding. In fact, not only go, Grandma, but bring a gift so that you can show your love. The fact is, is that just the opposite was happening. You see, when you hold up God's standard, it acts as a schoolmaster, as a tutor, to reveal sin, to show someone their need for Christ. When you lower the standard, you think maybe you're doing that in the name of love, but you're not. And so the reformers would say the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify, to lead us to faith in Christ. The law is like a mirror. You look in a mirror and you see your face is dirty and it needs cleaning. When you look into the mirror of Holy Scripture, you see that on the inside your soul is dirty and you need forgiveness. And so he says here in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's another word for saved or declared righteous. We'll look at that in a moment. No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So God is simply saying, be quiet. You're guilty. Your mouth should be closed before me because the law shows how guilty you and I are. And so with that truth established, he now says in verse 21, remember, who is he writing? He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to saved people. He's writing so that we can deepen in our understanding of the gospel and how God thinks about us. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So Paul makes it clear that the righteousness of God, and he'll highlight for us in a moment that that's what you need to have if you're going to go to heaven someday. Your righteousness, like my righteousness, is as a, is as a filthy rag. It falls short of the glory of God. But God's righteousness is apart from the law. It's apart from keeping the Ten Commandments. It's apart from following the golden rule. You can't reach down into your pocket of works and say, here God, look what I've done. Because our righteousness is unlike God's righteousness. Now this is an important phrase in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. In the introduction to the book, Paul highlighted this truth in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And verse 17 says, for in it, in what? In the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Apocalyptel. You've heard the word apocalypsis when we study the Revelation. One of the names for Revelation is the apocalypse, directly from the Greek. It's an unveiling. It's an uncovering of who Jesus is and what His plans are for this world. And so Paul says here, the righteousness of God is revealed, it's uncovered. 
from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And again, you see all caps indicating this is an Old Testament quotation. It's from the prophet Habakkuk, and it's the verse that God used to convert Martin Luther. And so our understanding of the righteousness of God is important. Four times in this paragraph alone, it's underscored. Did you pick that up? In verse 21, they're all underlined in my Bible. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22, Paul speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Verse 25, he tells us how Jesus shed his blood. What? To demonstrate his, namely the Father's righteousness. And then again in verse 26, the Apostle Paul says that God did this for what reason? For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. When someone today places their faith in Jesus Christ. So the phrase, the righteousness of God, is critical to our understanding of the book of Romans and certainly this portion of Scripture. So what precisely does God mean when he speaks of the righteousness of God? What does Paul mean by that? Is this some divine attribute that speaks of God's character, that he is a righteous God? Or is it possible that it's not referring to a divine attribute, but to a divine activity? When God acts in righteousness and in judgment. This phrase tore Martin Luther up for years. He was terrified by the phrase. Because all he could think of was God acting righteously against him, an unrighteous person. He wrote these words in his journal. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. Nothing stood in the way by that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in pursuing the unrighteous. No, unrighteous. Is that what God has in mind here? Or is God referring not to a divine attribute or to a divine activity, but to a divine gift? where God gifts you with His righteousness. And I will suggest, as I think this paragraph will bear out, that he's actually referring to all three. So I hope that we'll be able to unpack this, that God's righteous character, that's a divine attribute, that God demonstrates His righteousness, His divine activity, when He gifts us with this divine gift, this gift of righteousness. And so Luther was torn up on the inside. And he poured over the Bible. And as he read Romans 1, 16 and 17, it's like the Spirit of God illuminated his mind that this speaks of how God is a righteous God can take an unrighteous sinner and make that sinner righteous in his sight. Again, reading from his journal in 1545, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteousness. Unrighteous. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating night and day until I've grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby God, through grace and sheer mercy, He justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. 
Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage became to me the gateway to heaven. Well, let's see if we can understand what Martin Luther came to understand. Again, in the opening introduction, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, of course, is defined not as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word means good news. Those are four good news biographies, but the gospel, the articular use, is defined in Scripture as the death, burial, and the resurrection. I'm not ashamed of the death, burial, and the resurrection. That's how Paul will define it in virtually every epistle he writes. For it is the power of God for salvation. Only if you believe, and to everyone who believes, to both the Jew and to the Gentile, the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is unfolded. It is revealed. And so the Bible plainly teaches that one of our responsibilities, if you've met the Lord, if you've been saved, and Paul will underscore in the opening chapter of the believer's responsibility to carry the gospel, to share it with people. If you've been saved, you have a responsibility to help people to understand God's righteousness and man's unrighteousness. Because until a man sees himself as unrighteous, he will never see his need for a Savior. And so in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. You could say revealed in the new 2020 edition, but it's actually a different word than the one that's used in Romans 1. And so I like the older reading here. It's something that is revealed. It's something that is testified to, uh, something that is borne out as a truth. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Please don't ever get the idea that people in the Old Testament era were saved one way, i.e. by works, and people on this side of the cross are saved by grace. No, God has only had one way in all of time of saving people. People in the Old Testament looked forward to what God had promised as early as Genesis 3, illustrated through Abel in Genesis 4, uh, unfolded in uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac or potential sacrifice of Isaac. All the way through Genesis, God gives repeated signals. Before the verse, very first verse of Scripture was penned, that he would save men through the Messiah. They looked forward to what God was going to accomplish in the same way I look back. And so the law and the prophets, what we call today the Old Testament, bear witness to the truth that man has never been saved by good works. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That doesn't apply just in the church age. That applies in every age. Now, they may not have known that his name was Yeshua, but they knew that God would send a Savior. Listen, if God could have saved someone by works in the Old Testament era, then he could save people by works in this era. And God would have been a fool to have sent his son. But Paul is underscoring, no, to these Jewish men especially, who are trying to be made right, and to the highly religious Gentile in the first section of chapter 2, trying to be made right by what they do, that God has only had one way, and this is not some Pauline truth. This was taught in the Law and the Prophets. 
He underscores it already by quoting Habakkuk, that Habakkuk believed in salvation by grace through faith. And when he comes to Romans chapter 4, he's going to illustrate it. He's going to dip back into Old Testament history and take the two most highly respected men in the minds of the Jewish culture, Abraham and David. And he's going to illustrate with both of those individuals that they too were saved by grace. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. doesn't matter who you are or where you live. When you respond to the light that you have in faith, God gives more faith. And ultimately, He gives you the gospel. Sometimes people object of those whom God condemns for having never heard the gospel. Though God condemns them for rejecting the truth that they did receive, that they did not respond to. God is not trying to hide the gospel from men. God simply practices what He preaches. Jesus tells us that there's a time when you do not cast the gospel pearl before someone who is utterly hateful in disdaining its truth. You withhold it. God does the same thing. But when you have a man like Cornelius who responds to the light that he has, what does God do? He gives him more light. Here was a man who prayed, and God answered his prayer. He was lost. You say God doesn't hear the prayer of lost people. He heard the prayer of Cornelius, so don't say that. Now, the promises in Scripture for answered prayer are to those who are saved, but God can hear the prayer of a lost man, especially in bringing that person to himself. He even gave alms for the poor Jewish people to help those folks who are in need. And God said, your prayers and your arms have come up to heaven like a memorial. And so what did God do? He brought him the gospel. God brought Peter to him so that he might hear. And then the scripture says he was saved. He wasn't saved before that. So it's a by faith, through faith kind of rendition. Verse 22, look further. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And so the great promise of verse 22 is that salvation is given to all those who believe. All are in need, and all need to believe. Notice the end of verse 22. Here's the explanation why. For there is no distinction. Now, Romans 3.23 is often quoted. We teach our children to memorize it. But it might be more helpful to have them memorize at least the end of verse 22, because remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. There's a connection here in the original. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's saying there's no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're the pagan idolater of chapter 1 or the highly religious man of chapter 2. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're moral or immoral, educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're African or European, Asian or Indian religious or non-religious, there's no distinction. For, it's causal in the original, you could render it because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah says all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so this is one of the best known and most often quoted verses in Scripture. And people throughout the world this morning are trying to come to to, to terms with the guilt that's in their hearts. Some will suppress that guilt. 
Look, all, all, all men, they don't just start as pagan idolaters. Men start with a certain knowledge of God, but people can suppress that knowledge of God. If they suppress it and repeatedly suppress it, their hearts can become very, very hardened. Then you have other people who are searching, they're wondering. We baptized five in the first service, nine in the second service, but the five in the first service were all new believers. And they were searching, they were longing, trying to understand God's plan for their life. But someone needs to tell them, whoever will call on his name will be saved, but how can they call on him in whom they've not heard? Others, they're just paralyzed by their past. And they don't know what to do, and there's this void in their heart. And again, the good news needs to be shared. And I'm sure if this is a typical Sunday, there are people in these services who are basically asking, how can I get right with the living God? In some religions, they'll say, by the things you do. Some religions, you go bathe in the sacred water. You get baptized. You get confirmed. To some of the Pharisees, they thought they were righteous by their observance of the law. And they criticized Jesus for eating with, quote-unquote, sinners. Listen to what he said in Mark 2.17. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, by this little axiom, he did not mean that some are righteous and therefore are not in need of a Savior. He's just underscoring the truth that some people think they are righteous, and therefore they don't turn to a Savior. And that's where the Pharisees were. Look, just as you go to a doctor when you're sick... When you can't heal yourself, you'll come to a Savior when you see you cannot save yourself. But it would be irresponsible for a physician to agree with your self-diagnosis that's totally wrong if he knows it's wrong. And that's what Jesus is underscoring with these men. And while on the one hand, God the Holy Spirit can convict people of sin, understand God doesn't shout the gospel through the rocks. He doesn't write it in the clouds. You and, and I, we're, we're, we're God's mouthpieces. We're the one that He uses to share the good news as we're filled with the Spirit. And so, again, notice the word all in verse uh, 23. Circle it, for all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And again, it is causal. There is no distinction because all have sinned. He's underscoring this universal verdict. All is comprehensive. Everyone without exception. Paul's not speaking just to the church at Rome. He's not speaking just to Italians. He's speaking to the entire human race. He has just underscored, underscored in verse 19 that all the world, they become accountable to God. Now, that's the universal verdict. Secondly, that leads us to the undeniable status. So having given us the universal verdict, the Apostle Paul goes further, and now he explains the undeniable status. Again, we read here in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the key word is the word have. And of course, the two words, have sinned, is a single word in the Greek New Testament. And this verb is an important verb. It speaks here of a past tense, whether it's the sin that you committed in and with Adam, which, we, which he will highlight in the fifth chapter, 
that when Adam sinned, you sinned, I sinned, everybody sinned, we're in the loins of Adam, or whether it's some act of sin you've committed in the past, all have sinned, there are no exceptions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this word in the original is used as a verb, it's used as a noun, and it's used as an adjective. The verb, hamatano, describes the action of sinning. The noun describes the person doing it, the sinner. And the adjective describes the act. But in each case, the nuance of the verb or the adjective or the noun is that we have missed the mark. And of course, it's used in a number of different contexts outside of Scripture that helps elucidate the word for us. Most of you know in the first century, as well as in Hebrew, by the way, the same picture is given in Hebrew and is illustrated in the Hebrew text and in the Septuagint of someone aiming at a target who misses the target and they have said to have sinned. They have missed the mark. And so we have sinned in that we have missed the mark of God's righteous standard. You know, the communists in China don't believe there's a God. Now, I'm not dismissing Chinese people. There'll probably be, possibly, I can't say this definitively, more Chinese people in heaven than any other nationality. It's estimated that there are over 100 million Chinese people who have given their life to the Lord Jesus. But understand, the government is communist to the core. And so if you look in a dictionary in China as to what sin is, or for that matter, the same was true under the Russian government, they have as the entry, sin is, quote, an archaic word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. Now, it doesn't matter how you define sin. It doesn't change the truth that all have sinned, that we have all missed the mark. Now, think your way through this and the implications. Suppose Bob has done this huge pile of good deeds. And here's Bob, and he's next to the harlot and the tax collector who ripped folks off in the first century. And Oh, Bob's going to get in. Somebody else says, well, I'm not sure, you know. Look at this man over here in ministry. He, he's much better than Bob. Bob's a lowlife, but look at this pastor. Somebody else might say, forget the pastor. Look at Mother Teresa or Gandhi or the Pope, whom they call officially Holy Father. But listen, when you size yourself up next to Jesus Christ, the glory of God, the ground is level. And so it's Jesus to the rescue in this paragraph. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is pictured in God the Son. The Father's righteousness is seen in the Messiah. And next to Him, we all miss the mark. You know, sometimes I will hear Christian people say, oh, He, he really needs to be saved. Like that person is somehow more lost than someone else. Listen, Paul says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. Some people are not more dead than other people. In the eyes of an infinite holy God, we are all dead. Perhaps the harlot is at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and you look at her morality way down there, and you see some other highly religious man up on top of Mount Everest, 
but both are infinitely far away from the stars. It doesn't matter who you are, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so very often it's the religious man. I spoke to a person yesterday, and I'd, I'd try our visitors if they give me permission, they check on their box, please call me, and Sometimes they fill the card out before the sermon and maybe they'd have second thoughts after. But I finally got her and she said, well, actually, she came on Friday. She said, I was mad at you. I said, you were? Yeah, I was, I was mad. I, I, I left discouraged. This idea that I needed to be saved. Well, we all need to be saved. And you see, it's the religious man very often that gives the Lord Jesus the most difficulty. Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 21. It's just back a few pages. Go to Matthew chapter 21. This will be worth your turning there. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor at 5.30 and you'll be gifted one. Matthew chapter 21. And look, if you will, at verse... um, Let's pick it up in verse 28. Jesus is telling this parable to men who are outwardly religious. And so this parable is, uh, remember the, the titles here are, again, just put there by the uh, publishers. And depending on your Bible, it might have a different title. But most Bibles will call this the parable of the two sons. Now follow along starting in verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And, and by the way, that's important because there's this one man who has two sons. They live under the same roof. They're both his children. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, and he speaks to each of them individually. By the way, that's the way God deals with families. We just baptized a whole family. Well, the children are not believers because the dad and mom are believers. God has children. God has no grandchildren. And so when God says to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your house, he goes on to define specifically that every single person in the house believed. Each individual must respond. And so this father speaks individually to each son. And he came to the first and said, uh, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. So the first son refused to work for his father, not wanting to yield to the father's will. But he later regretted it. He changed his mind. We use the word repent. That's what the word repent, metaneo, means to change your mind. He regretted it. He spoke wrongly, so he changes. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So the second son, he said the right thing. He even said it with respect. I will, sir. But he didn't do it. He said he would do it because his religion is outward only. He never volitionally, as an act of the will, changes his mind. And churches today are filled with such people. They imitate the second son. They will admit the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God. And they intend to get serious with God but it's only an external seriousness. And sometimes I've seen it even in teenagers who really concern me. And I'm burdened for some of them, even some that attend here. 
because to whom much is given, much is expected. And they think they have forever to pull this thing off. You know, that I'm going to go and live and sow my oats as if that's a better plan. That's what the devil would have you to believe. But listen, I don't care if you're 17 or 70, if you suppress the truth of the gospel long enough, you can, as stated in the parable of the sower, Jesus said the devil is given permission to snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. He underscored that same truth in John chapter 12 with the Pharisees who had been given all this light. He says, listen, respond to the light while you have the light that you might become sons of light. And though he was performing so many miracles, they refused to believe. And then judicially it said, for this cause, he, he, who, he, God, hardened their heart. He, God, blinded their eyes. He, God, stopped their ears. They wouldn't believe and be saved. We don't have forever. And so, which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. They were right. Jesus said, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. Those who are considered the dregs of the Jewish society, Jesus is saying they are in a better position to enter the kingdom. Why? Because they knew they had a problem. So there's this universal verdict that all of us are sinners. There is this undeniable status that we need uh, 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 forgiveness that we can achieve on our own that brings us to this unchangeable chasm, this unbridgeable chasm. Let's look further now, if you will, at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see those words? Two words fall short again. It's one in the original. Hustereo means to be lacking. To be utterly lacking. This same word, by the way, identical in form. And again, words pick up their nuance and meaning by context. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, he's speaking of the great men and women of the faith who trusted God even at the expense of losing their lives he says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute. Same word translated fall short. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. In that sense, you could translate the verse, for all have sinned and are destitute of the glory of God. Outside of the New Testament, it's used of a first century farmer who missed the season. He failed to get his seed in the ground on time, and so he failed to get a crop. And so in that sense, you could render the verse, for all of sin and miss the season of the glory of God. It's also used outside of the Bible of someone who's uneducated, of someone who's illiterate, and so you could render it, for all of sin and are illiterate of the glory of God. It's also used in the financial realm of someone who is bankrupt for all of sin and are bankrupt of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if you're morally upright, highly educated, super rich. The fact is, is that we all fall short. We miss this mark and God cannot bend the rules. We fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God was seen in the Old Testament in his Shekinah when the presence of the Lord Himself would come there in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And of course, the Word became flesh. 
and we beheld His glory. God put on human flesh. He tabernacled among us, John will write. And so Paul concludes this paragraph with the unreal blessing. There is this status that we have, this chasm that is unbridgeable. We can't fix it on our own, but there's an unreal blessing that God wants to give us. Look further again into verses 23 and 24. Here's the heart of this paragraph. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now here's a slide highlighting some critical theological terms found in the paragraph. The term justified, the word redemption, the word propitiation, and the word demonstration. And the temptation for many Christians today is to think, well, I can't understand those words. Those words are for seminary students, they're for pastors, they're for theologians to ponder, but they're not for me. That's exactly what the devil wants you to think. Because he wants you to have your spiritual growth stunted. He wants to keep you from being able to share the gospel with clarity. He wants to keep you from messing up his kingdom, to being on the offensive. And he does not want you to see yourself with this new identity that God has given you in Christ Jesus. And sadly, we live in a time in human history where there is such flabby, theological thinking, these 20-minute sermons where you don't even need a Bible to follow it, and we wonder why the church is so doctrinally low and why we have so little impact across the world. It is said that we are at the lowest point by one church historian, Dr. John Hanna, that we are at the lowest point right now in American history in the morality of the so-called evangelical church. And I think Dr. Hanna, one of my professors, was right. Now notice these terms. They're each important. In Luther's day, the term justified was a term that men lost their lives over. What did justification mean? In Roman Catholicism, they said justification was a process. Whereas the Scripture teaches... No, justification is an act. It happens in a moment's time when God declares you righteous and holy in His sight. Now, sanctification is a process. God declares you holy. He doesn't make you holy. He declares you holy. He gives you. He credits you. He imputes Christ's righteousness to your account. But then He wants us in our practice to live out that holiness. That's Romans 5-8. through But the Roman church said, no, justification and sanctification are both processes and they're not a single act. And I want you to see that this is an important thing. This is the difference between Catholics and Protestants. This is the difference between whether you believe the gospel of grace as it's presented in Scripture or you preach and embrace another Jesus that is not found in Scripture. So consistent with that teaching, in the Roman church, only certain select individuals are deemed to be saints. Well, if you're new to the Bible, you'll soon discover that that's not true of believers. Every believer is called a saint because sainthood is not based on a process. It's determined by an act when God declares you righteous. 
And while we're here, again, he's borrowing terms from the courtroom. Any reader of Koine Greek in the first century, as they spill through this passage, oh, Paul's like, he's like a lawyer here, and he's using all these legal terms. And while we're here, let me just say that there's a difference, too, between being justified and being pardoned. Being pardoned is not the same as being justified. You can uh, stand in a court of law, and for whatever reason, like the lady who was pardoned, having stabbed her husband a hundred times beyond me, and uh, nonetheless, you know, you can be pardoned by a judge, but not forgiven. There's a difference. A judge can pardon you, but he cannot forgive you. For that matter, you can be forgiven and not be pardoned, which is why Paul warns believers in Romans 13, you better obey the law. The laws are there by God given to the government to ideally uphold righteousness and to put down evil. And just because you're saved doesn't mean you're above the law. And so you may break the law. This morning there are born-again Christians who ripped off some corporation and they're in prison. Now they can be forgiven, but they're going to have to suffer the consequences of their sin. They're not pardoned. For that matter, again, justification is not the same as being forgiven. You can be forgiven, but justification is much bigger than that. Or you say, what does it mean, Pastor? Well, sometimes people will say, justification means just as if you never sinned. That's a half-truth. That's not an accurate definition of justification. It's not just as if you had never sinned. It's not simply that God wipes the slate clean. God does much more than that. He not only wipes the slate clean, burying your sins in the deepest sea, removing them as far as the east is from the west. He credits you with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He views you as a saint, as a hagioi, as holy ones. He sees you with the righteousness of his own son. And again, that's important because the way you think about yourself, you want it to be consistent with the way God thinks about you. You know, sometimes Christians say, well, I know I need to love that person because God commands me to love even my enemy, but I don't really like that person. <laughs> We've all been there, right? Say amen. Don't look so pious. <laughs> well, God not only loves you, he likes you. He likes this new status that he has given you. He sees you dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look further in verse 24. Being justified how? As a gift. The original Greek, it's a little wordy, but it reads, being justified without a cause. It's the word Dorian, and so you could render it as a gift or without a cause. Interestingly, this same word is used descriptively of the Lord Jesus in John 15 when he tells his disciples and he quotes Psalm 69, which of course was written in Hebrew, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word is used, and it's used in John because it's written in Greek. He says, they hated me without a cause. They hated me, Dorian. 
The people in this day hate me, but for no reason. Look, nobody could say, here's why we hate Jesus. Here's where he falls short. He didn't fall short anywhere. He's infinitely perfect. And so when Paul reminds us we are justified without a cause, he's underscoring that there was not a single thing in you or in me that moved God to declare us righteous in his sight. He does it freely. It is not earned. It's not merited. We are in the cesspool of sin next to an infinitely holy God. And without a cause in us, God can declare us righteous again Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. So the grace of God, the apostle Paul says, has nothing to do with us. You know the word grace. We often quote G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's not a bad definition at all. And so sadly, in Luther's day, this doctrine of being saved by grace where you could know you're going to heaven, oh my, this rubbed the Roman popes wrong. After all, they lost their control over you. How could you buy an indulgence to get out of jail card, so to speak, to get out of that supposedly place of purification where those sins that weren't forgiven through the precious blood of Christ, because remember, in their mind, justification is not an act, it's a process. They don't deny that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. They just say it wasn't finished. That also you are justified by the things that you do. It's the Jesus Plus program, as I often describe it. And so, in Roman Catholic theology, they did not like this idea that we're saved sola gratia, sola Christos, sola Deo Gloria, sola Scriptura, sola Fide, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's a control problem. So what did they do? What was their response to the 95 assertions that Luther posted on the door at Wittenberg? Well, it was called the Council of Trent that met from 1545 to 1563. Nearly 20 years, they would convene, they would dismiss, they would convene, they would dismiss. You say that's just some ancient document. No, it's not. It was reaffirmed at Vatican I. It was reaffirmed at Vatican II. It was reaffirmed in 2010 at the College of Cardinals. It is a binding document in Roman Catholic faith. Uh, thank God for those Roman Catholics who through their reading of Scripture or the hearing the preaching of the Gospel on radio or other places have found the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying all Catholics are headed for hell, but I am saying without apology that the Roman church denies the simple Gospel that they preach another Jesus. So what was their response? Well, they came up with all these different canons. Again, we're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption. Again, an important word. Peter, in describing redemption, says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood, blood of His unblemished lamb, and spotless the blood of Christ. So they write all these canons. Let me read just a handful of canons. You heard me share these about a decade ago, but I want to dust off your minds. Canon 9. 
If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So he's saying anyone that teaches, you're saved by grace alone, and that good works aren't necessary on top of that to help to achieve this justification. Because remember, it's not an act, it's a process. Let him be anathema. Now the word anathema means condemned. What do the Roman church do? They slaughter 100,000 Bible-believing Christians. They martyred them. Why? Because they taught that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And Paul uses that word anathema in Galatians 1. If anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, contrary to the one which we delivered to you, let him be anathema. Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified. Let him be anathema. If anyone says that the justice received, Canon 24, is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Now, in fairness to our Roman Catholic friends, many mainline Protestants, if they even believe in Jesus anymore, teach the same package heresy. But listen, the scripture is clear. It's not Jesus plus. He shouts, it is finished. And God redeems you through his blood all by himself, or he will not redeem you at all. Further, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom? Whom who? Christ Jesus. It's a reference to Christ Jesus. The last two words of verse 24. You see that in the text? Look at it. You need to know this passage. You need to know it inside and out. You need to bleed it. Whom God displayed publicly Jesus is the one whom God displayed publicly. That's another way of saying God put him up on a cross. Whom God displayed publicly, here's the next word, as a propitiation. So beginning in verse 25, the perspective changes from the death of Christ to what that death accomplished for God the Father. God was propitiated. Now the word propitiation is an important word. And it's an important word when you think about yourself if you've been saved in this new identity as God has given you. It's found four times in the New Testament. Hebrews 2, therefore, he had, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. He had to become a human in all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or again in 1 John 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Or 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiate means to appease wrath. It was used throughout the New Testament era by pagans. When I was in India, there were 
pagans everywhere. They have supposedly 300 million gods. I don't know how they come up with that number, but, but there was more gods than I could count. And every time someone sensed that a god was angry, they would try to propitiate that god through human sacrifice. They did it in the first century. Oh, we had a bad hurricane. Propitiate the god of hurricanes. But this is not man propitiating God. This is God propitiating Himself with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God gives of Himself in the cross to save us from Himself. It's through the redeeming blood of Christ that God's anger is appeased, that is satisfied, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And so God is propitiated not by something that we do, but by something that He has done. So God's holiness is not only satisfied, that's the doctrine of justification. God has redeemed us, He's made a payment with the blood of Christ, such that He's not angry at you anymore. And notice this is all a demonstration. Look at verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In God's forbearance, God was patiently waiting, one translation renders it. God was holding back. Why could God put his arms around a guy like King David who was a murderer and an adulterer and call him a man after his own heart? Because God was looking down the corridors of time to his son who would make a payment for that sin. God was able to pass over the sins of the previous generations because he knew what he was going to accomplish in the fullness of time at just the right time when men were being crucified and when the gospel could go to the whole known world. For verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So the cross is a demonstration of the righteousness of God. How so? That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. In other words, God can't just say, well, I forgive you because you're sorry. He can't do that any more than some guilty prisoner having murdered multiple people say, I'm really sorry. And the judge says, you're free to go. No, God has to remain just. We're guilty. By nature, we're children of wrath. He has to remain just, and since we fall short of the glory of God, he has to be the justifier. That makes us justifies. So God can remain both just and the justifier because of a propitiatory sacrifice in the blood of Christ that redeemed us by which he can declare us righteous and we can be whole in the sight of God Almighty. This is great news. God is satisfied. So when you think of God, don't think of him as angry with you because all of his anger was burned out in a substitute. Even when you blow it, God doesn't deal with you in anger because all of our sin was dealt with in anger. Now, God may deal with you as a loving father if you grew up in a healthy home and on occasion your dad disciplined you. He didn't, di- he didn't do it because he hated you, because he, he, wanted, to, he was, wanted to just beat up on you. He did it because he loved you. Now, if you didn't grow up in that kind of home, it doesn't matter. Your mind can be renewed. You're not trapped in some generational sin. That's psychobabble that has entered in the front door of the church. 
Oh, I had a wicked father, therefore I'll never be whole. That's nonsense. That's the devil lying to you. No, you think after God's thoughts. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but three times in this amazing paragraph, it underscores we're saved by faith or by believing. First in verse 22, a second time in verse 25, a third time in here again in verse 26. By faith. Don't tell people they just need faith. Faith has no ability to save anyone. Faith does not save you. Christ saves you. Faith is simply the instrument by which you get credited for what Jesus did so that your sins are not counted against you. You're saved by faith in Christ who satisfied the holy wrath of God the Father. I'll never forget reading about that Midwestern fire in the early part of the 19th century that swept across that prairie and they say those fires would come so fast they would just literally destroy and eat everything in their sight. And one family man knew he couldn't outrun this fire. So he actually ran towards the fire. And he lit a fire. And the fire began to come towards his family. And then he went around and he, he got through the edge where he was safe. And the fire came and it lapped all the way around the edge and destroyed his house, his farm, and everything behind him. Why? Because the fire had nothing to burn. God's wrath has been burned out in Jesus Christ. But it is only good for you if you come by faith and you trust Him to save you. Our Father, we thank You this morning for the chance to open this portion of Scripture. Help us with clarity to share the Gospel. To present You for the righteous God that You are. That our righteousness falls sadly short. Help us even this week to present the gospel to someone in need. We ask you for that opportunity like Paul prayed for, an open door to share this good news. Father, I have no doubt someone's listening to me somewhere today who has tried to earn their way to heaven, justify themselves, but your promise is, is that if they will call upon Jesus today, He will save them in a moment. We thank You for the gift of God, which is eternal life. Help someone in humility to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, I'm thankful that You have entrusted to every blood-bought, born-again child of God this good news. We know as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, there's coming a day of accountability for those who have been saved the bema, the judgment seat of Christ. May we be found faithful stewards. Thank You that You don't put us under pressure. You just look for people who are available. And that You fill available people. And minister through available people. And then You reward us throughout all of eternity. 
May that be us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. You may be in Graniteville, you may be in Grays, and you have a decision to make. There's someone down front that will greet you this morning. You've received Christ. You've never made it public. That's a first step. You should be baptized as a symbol of your salvation. While it's a symbol, it's more than a symbol. It's an act of obedience. Maybe you've been saved and baptized, but you don't have a church home. If we can be that church home, I want to invite you to come this morning. So as Matt leads us, step out and meet me here in the front.